have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner feel very privileged to have as my guest today for Spirit in Action, Holly Near. Holly has put in more than four decades advocating and training for peace and justice through her music. With more than 27 recordings, she has spoken out on a diverse rainbow of issues and provided inspiration and fuel for millions of workers for improving our world. Holly does more than just sing. She enlightens and trains. In addition to concerts, she provides experiences like Change of Heart, The Art of Activism, A Talk with Song, and her Demystifying Activism workshop. This interview with Holly was recorded such that I could broadcast this program on the day that she'll also be appearing in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome, Holly, to Spirit in Action. Thank you. Where about in the world are you right now? I'm, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and I just looked out the window and I see a little snow coming down. So that's lovely. We're going to go out and take a walk in it shortly, but I've been touring, been in Kansas City and traveling around the Midwest, Chicago, Madison. Before that, on the East Coast, I've been doing a very focused concert about trying to lift our spirits up in a time when people who have open minds, open hearts, progressive ideas are feeling an incredible amount of despair and they're feeling hopeless or exhausted because we are in a time where the leadership in the country is committing so many crimes against nature and the planet and humanity and people feel just 
undone by it. And so the concert is very focused and directed on trying to help an audience lift themselves up to their highest self and not be brought down by what is going on in the world today, but rather see ourselves as human beings. You know, we come to this planet, this extraordinary planet. It's the only one we know of that has life on it like this, and we get to be here. And fantastic and horrific things have happened in every single decade of since the beginning of time. That's the nature of being on the planet. And so we who want to try to lift our species up and want to be more connected on both a environmental and political and cultural and spiritual level, our job is just to hold that space while we are alive here. Hold it so that we keep lifting up the possibility of love and nonviolent resolution and care for children and care for the planet. We hold that space. Like the Native Americans say, we are the stewards while we are here. And if one takes the mentality that one might have been trained in a corporate world to have to achieve certain things and come up with a bottom line within the fiscal year, of course one would get depressed when you look at this work. But if we think of ourselves in a much bigger, more spiritual context of being the stewards, the caretakers, of holding the space, while we are activists, while we are parents, while we are lovers, while we are stewards, I think we can make it from birth to death in a more graceful and effective way. Would you say that that's the bottom line that you're aiming at, to add to that grace and the better centeredness as we go through and reach the other end? I want to just do my little part. And when I was younger, I thought I had to fix the world. Now, I just have to be in the world, as open and as willing as possible. In fact, recently I wrote a song called I Am Open and I Am Willing, and it is a a prayer in many ways, not a religious prayer, but a spiritual prayer, something that I can hum in the car, something that I can sing to myself when I find myself shutting down, saying, this is too much, I can't take it. And instead of shutting down and saying, I can't take it, I just turn the news off, or I change my focus, or I think, what decisions would I be making if I loved the world rather than trying to fix the world? How can I walk into this grocery store and affect other people's lives simply by offering them a hello or some genuine care for them? How can I be driving down the freeway instead of having road rage about the traffic that I can be an active noticer in some sort of positive way? And I think that we diminish the importance of small acts of courage and love, and that is part of what contributes to our depression. I am open and I am willing For to be hopeless would seem so strange It dishonors those who go before us So lift me up to the light
a song called I Am Willing. It's on Holly Near's latest collection called Show Up. This is Spirit in Action, and you're listening to an interview with singer-activist Holly Near. I want to give you a little affirmation here. I was playing your latest CD, Show Up, and my wife, who's heard your music all over the years and loves it too, she said, there's something different about this CD. You actually have achieved this kind of a higher, softer, more positive note. Did you set out to create this CD to give the same message that you're trying to do as part of your concert series? No, actually. I love that your wife said that. That's really lovely because I think it's just a sign of my own maturity as an artist. All the work I've done, I've always tried to be completely myself wherever I was in that process. And I look back and I have to laugh at some of it because some of it's way more uh, naive or shallow or insecure. You know, it's whatever I was at the time. And in this particular time in my life, I'm 57 years old, I am feeling a kind of maturity come into my music and into my voice and into my thinking. And I'm pleased to hear that she thinks that's reflected in the new CD. 
but the CD actually happened because last November my mother died. She was 89 years old, and she had a beautiful passing, absolutely divine, and she has no fear-based thinking. She doesn't belong to a religion, doesn't belong to a politic that believes in punishment after death, and so there were times where she'd be lying in bed and, and kind of dreamy, and she'd wake up and she said, why am I here? Why aren't I dressed and up and doing my tasks? And we'd say, well, you're dying, and your family's here with you, and, and her eyes would light up. She'd get like this glow of happiness, like, oh, we're going on to this next experiment, you know, this next phase, which could be something or could be nothing. And she didn't seem to care. She was just kind of interested. I just found that the last great gift that my mother gave us as children was to show us how to die, that we don't have to be afraid. And fear seems to be the really big thing right now. I mean, here we had this terrible thing happen in our country where 3,000 people were killed in a unexpected and very violent and hostile way, and yet the way in which the administration responded to that was not to call together all the great thinkers and peacemakers. He didn't call up Nelson Mandela, and he didn't call up the Dalai Lama, and he didn't call up Gloria Steinem, and he didn't call up the great lovers of the world and say, oh dear, look what our foreign policy and look what our history has led to. Let's get together and see if we can come up with a new way to live from here on out. Now, that would have been a spiritual leader. That would have been a great leader for our country. Instead, immediately triggered off everybody's fear, immediately put high security into the airports, immediately put everybody on alert. If you took the hundreds of thousands of people every year, I think it's hundreds of thousands, who die drunk driving accidents, more people die. Why aren't there National Guards standing in front of bars? making sure that nobody gets in their car who's had too much to drink. When you Source think of, of profit, it, I imagine. Well, yeah, or why? I mean, there's no fear base to that. It's just a number of tragedies, but nobody has moved in with guns and created a fear-based thought about that. All there is is grief and tragedy. And I don't mean all, but when you add fear to something, it changes the ability to think clearly. I mean, if you went in and said, look how many thousands and hundreds of thousands of people die every day from hunger, you send in the National Guard, you send in the military to stand in front of farms and grocery stores and really facilitate the feeding of the people. It's just all I'm saying is that when a government comes in and terrifies their people or when a religion decides to terrify their people, the first thing that happens is that people cannot think clearly. So one of the things I'm trying to do with my music and with the master classes I do and the teaching is to help us find out what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? And let's work on that. After we move through some of that fear, how can we articulate our highest self through whatever form that is? Maybe it's neighborly kindness. Maybe it's activism. Maybe it's art. And it's why I so care about the artists right now who are taking on this challenge because I think art and music in particular can actually guide a people in a more profound way than probably any other form that we know. And I think you've been trying to do this for four decades or so. You've certainly been strong anti-war activist. You've been woman's advocate. You've been ecologically active. Where is your leading taking you now? Where did you start? Uh, you said you laugh at your naive beginnings. <laughs> and I love some of those naive beginnings, and I realize that they were the beginnings. They were the beginnings. Where are you being led now? What's the real work, the causes? Well, now I see that activism, like playing the cello or being an athlete, we have to practice. The first time you pick up that violin, it screeches, 
and everybody in the house goes, oh, my, I wish they'd picked up a different instrument. And then later on, they're playing the most soulful, beautiful melody or in a violin part or a fiddle part, and everybody forgives those beginning moments. And so the same thing is with activism. We have to hurl ourselves out there. We have to make mistakes, but we have to practice. And as we practice, we try this, try that, try this, try that. We get to be better humanitarians and communitarians. And and, uh, people who kind of get embarrassed or get their feelings hurt or get defensive and then back away and say, well, I'll never do that again, that's too bad because it is in the doing it again that you get better. So one of the things when I do these workshops called demystifying activism is to help us see that, to say don't let one accusation or one hurt feeling take you away from this extraordinary life that we're in where we can participate in glorious ways, very different ways but glorious ways. And the other thing is going back to the fear-based thinking is that I try to do songs or in the teaching raise questions. I'm not telling people how to think, but I'm trying to raise questions that will jar us out of any kind of drug-like sleep that we've been put into by corporate media or by fear-based thinking. So I have a song, for example, called I Ain't Afraid, which is speaking to the great world religions and to people who practice those religions and to say to those who are on the more sort of closed mind, fear-based side of any one of the religions and say, it is not your religion I fear, it's what you do in the name of God. And you wrote that about a year before 911 came along. Yes, it And you, you addressed all those religions. Have you had to soften it, change it, or is it even more applicable? Was it prescient? I think probably if I'd written it in the 50s, it would have been applicable. If I wrote it in 2020, it'll be applicable. It is something that has historically happened again and again where some power force can move into a community of really well-meaning people and talk them into committing genocide in the name of God. We've seen it before. We're seeing it now. It will happen again unless we can become very clear about that. you do in the name 
and that was Holly Near's song, I Ain't Afraid. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and this is Spirit in Action, and we're talking today with singer-activist Holly Near. So that's one of the songs I wrote, and it's one of the conversations that I can just toss out. And all of a sudden, you know, after the concert, everybody's sitting over coffee or at home going, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, having their own debate about this and looking into their own lives and their own hearts. Because the way the music is, as well as the way the concert is, it's not accusatory. It's really, are we afraid to keep asking the big questions? Can we do it together? If we get stuck behind our computers for day after day after day and we never come into community space, we lose the opportunity to have that goosebump experience. So I love the idea of inviting ourselves back to the town square and getting a sense of who it is we live with. And I try to write songs that will speak to some of the fears that people have. I I found a song that was written by Eric Schwartz. I didn't write the song, but I was at a festival, and I heard him singing it. And it's this cute little ditty called Hattie and Maddie. It's about two older women that he lives upstairs from them in an apartment, and he slowly, over time, starts to understand the fact that they're lesbians. And they're dressed in their aprons and their proper dress, but he's just thought of them as two old ladies. And then he finally starts to understand that for all their lives, they've loved one another and lived together. It's such a sweet, fun song, but it raises a question that might cause some people discomfort in such a delightful way. Hattie and Maddie live downstairs from me. Same apartment since 
loving, sitting and knitting and loving their whole life through. for Hattie and Maddie. That's off of Holly Near's latest CD. It's called Show Up. And you're listening to an interview with singer-activist Holly Near today on Spirit in Action. When I'm writing songs myself or when I'm picking songs, I really try to look for that element that can bring up the question and say, if you were being your best self, your most spiritual, I mean, if you're a Christian, if you were being the most like Jesus, or if you're a Buddhist, if you were being the most or if you're a non-believer, if you're being the most like your favorite animal or your favorite flower or your favorite windstorm, what would your behavior look like? Now, none of us can be that all the time, but I think it's good to have a picture in our imaginations of what we can rise to, not only in our inventions and our technology, but in the way in which we want to change our species. We want to lift ourselves up. So I wrote a song that's kind of a fantasy song. It's called Planet Called Home. And it really tells a story as if we'd invited all the souls back to the earth in this time of crisis to see if there's a way to help us through this so that the earth could spin on for millenniums again. I love being able to take these things that could be rhetorical conversations and put them into really fun and divine storytelling. Can you call on your imagination As if telling a myth to a child Put in the fantastical, wonderful, magical Add the romantic, the brave and the wild Once upon a time there was a power So great that no one could know its name People tried to claim it And rule with it always Such arrogance ended in shame Thousands of years
creatures sent from the power souls that have come with one purpose in mind to do one thing that will alter the outcome and maybe together we can do it in time can you call on your imagination as telling a myth to a child put in the fantastical wonderful magical at the romantic the brave and the Planet Called Home is from Holly Near's album, Edge, and we're talking with Holly today on Spirit in Action. Where did you get your training? Because you go in the military and they put you in boot camp and they give you all this training. They train you towards using violence. You've obviously learned a different way. Where did you get trained? Well, fortunately, I had got training early because my parents were committed to a certain amount of nonviolence. We were ranchers, so there was some violence because we were raising cattle and pigs and sheep. <laughs> so, but along with the killing of those animals at the time for food, we also were there at the birth of the animals. As children, we got to grow up seeing animals be born. So we had a fairly strong life and death cycle education early on. My parents also did not allow us to use insulting language towards other people. There were a lot of words that just were not allowed at our dinner table or anywhere on our property, for that matter. The third thing was you were never allowed to point a gun, even a toy gun or a gun made out of a stick. But if it was pretending to be a gun, you couldn't point it at another person. So there were things like that as we were growing up that were instilled very early on for us. We also had music. My parents brought a lot of records, if you remember records, (laughs) into the household. We learned about Paris from Edith Piaf, and we learned about Africa from Miriam Makeba, and we learned what was going on in some of the struggles of black people from Paul Robeson and Harry Belafonte and Marian Anderson. And, and then we had the way in which our parents offered them up to us was, again, back to this issue of fear. They said, always try fascination first. If you see something that you're uncomfortable about, try to be fascinated before you're fearful. And that was such a good practice, and I use it today all the time. If I'm walking down the street and I see something, then I catch my breath and go, "Mm, I think I'll walk around on the other side of the street. These are knee-jerk reactions that we've been taught. Now, that's not to say one shouldn't be cautious, because we do live in a place where there's a lot of disturbed people and violence. But in general, I try to say, what about this is curious? How can I call on my best self right now rather than my worst self? Sometimes it's just extraordinary to me that I'll have a knee-jerk reaction. I'll be walking down the street and a bunch of young teenage boys will be coming and they've been locked up in school all day and their energy is just flying about and part of me goes, oh, I think I'll step aside here. And I thought, these are our children. Where did I get that reaction from? Kids get such a bad rap in this country. They're just always, what's wrong with these children? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And if you were growing up in a time where all the grown-ups ever said was, what's wrong with you? Can you imagine what that does to your psyche? So I now stay right there on the sidewalk, look them all in the eye, smile and say, hi, how you doing? How is school? And they look at me like, who is this crazy old lady? But they get seen. They get loved. They get acknowledged. And it's amazing. Some of them actually look back and say, you know, hello, ma'am, or fine, or how are you doing? Or, you know, they have a genuinely loving response, and it's just great. I get so excited when I catch myself being silly. 
being closed down, being ignorant of the very things that I teach and preach all the time. And, you know, you can be in a grocery store and a parent is exhausted and it probably herself was beaten or himself was beaten as they're being hostile or insulting to a child. And there's all kinds of ways to do intervention with love. And one of the ways sometimes is just to look at that child and say, hi, oh, aren't you beautiful? And you just distract the energy. There's the parent saying to the kid, you're bad. And you don't even involve the mother or the father because you'd embarrass them. You just go right to that child and say, aren't you a beauty? Boy, your mommy sure is lucky to have you. It changes everything right there in the room. I know a guy who's a Vietnam vet, really big guy, 6'4", very wounded legs. He walks with a limp. But when he came back from Vietnam, he said, I'm committing my life to taking care of children because he did some bad things in Vietnam. And the way he heals himself is to really focus love on children. And if somebody's getting hurt in the grocery store, he'll just knock off a row of cans with his shoulder and create such a distraction that he becomes the bad kid. And the child for that moment is let off the hook. So this is the art of activism. This is how do we find creative, fun ways to just constantly water the plants. Your mother, in the liner notes for And Still We Sing, she comments that sometimes she perceives that she saw in your eyes a sadness that you didn't get to go and be a Broadway diva or whatever it is. (laughs) Did you lose out much, or are you just really following the path that your soul couldn't have gone any other way? Well, how do we know? I asked my father one time whether he was happy that he and my mom had been together. And he said, yes, but he said, just to respond to your question in a different way, how would we know? Because every time we fantasize doing something differently, we always make it a really good journey. (laughs) And we don't put in the tragedies, you know, if I'd only done this, we only put in the good part of the story. I trained all my life, uh, my childhood, I should say, to go to Broadway. I studied dance and music and theater, and that's what I wanted to do was be a Broadway star. Well, my life didn't go that way. I got distracted beautifully by the world, and I ended up working more for peace and justice issues and becoming a singer outside of the music industry. I had opportunities. I did film. I did television. I did a show on Broadway. I had opportunities to sing in the music industry, but this other world just swept me away, and it kept calling me and calling me. If it hadn't called, I wouldn't have gone there. So I can't say that it was my intention, but my path kept going in that way. If I had stayed focused on film, television, Broadway, would I have become a big star? Would I have been in the company of Tyne Daly and people like that who both did film as well as Broadway? I don't know. The sadness my mother speaks about is that it was a world that I dreamed of being part of, and this other life happened. But I know people who are in the business who sometimes look at my life with incredible envy because they feel like they are trapped somewhat in the rules of the industry. Whatever scripts happen to come up, whatever films happen to be made, may not be the stories of their dream. We all have the up and down sides of our life, but I would say at this point, the life I've had going on this path was much more original, much more challenging, and probably much more fulfilling than the one I might have had working in the mainstream entertainment industry. One of the comments you made earlier as we were speaking here, you said, when you're teaching or preaching. Now, I've heard you distance yourself from religious. I don't think I said preaching. I've got it on tape. You do have it on tape. Wow, well, it's flipped out. Teaching or preaching, whatever I'm teaching or preaching. Oh, geez. I'll have to talk to my therapist about that one. (laughs) 
so what I wanted to ask you was, how do you see these things different, and where does religion go wrong? I mean, religion comes from this Latin word meaning to bind up and to make whole, and certainly if that's the objective, why does religion or government or whatever go wrong? What is it that they're missing that I think you would maybe put under the rubric spiritual? What do they give away of the spirit that would make it good instead of the travesty it so often is? Well, I have a no interest or commitment in criticizing or analyzing someone's religion. The part I am interested in is exactly the question you're asking, is where do they go wrong? Not they individuals, but the institutions. And I try to think back, well, how, given the definition you just gave, how did we come to have religion? And I can imagine people living thousands of years before us trying to figure out why we're here and where are we. And you're standing out there in the middle of the desert, and there's the moon, and then all of a sudden it's gone, and there's an eclipse. And back when all of that early science was being developed, there must have been moments of terror and fear and wonder, and people would gather together and huddle under this thing which may have been a miracle, or all of that language that ends up being in religions and even in storytelling of gods and goddesses and powers and lightning that strikes and trees that burn and and all of these things come from being afraid and gathering together and then trying to help each other figure out together what just happened. That seems so natural to me. And when people gather together to ask questions about the unknown, if they can be at peace with the unknown while they're asking the question, and again, stay in a state of fascination rather than fear, I think those are the groups, spiritually and religiously, who stay on track. But if we're drawn into the part of those questions that are fear-based, that said, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. If you don't do this, you will be struck down by the gods. That kind of punishment that fear, that terror that gets set out there, or my God is better than your God, so I'm organizing an army and we're going to wipe you all out because you are the devil. And if that's the direction it goes, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. But see, I somewhere along the way grew up feeling like I'm okay with the unknown. It's okay with me on a regular basis to go, wow, huh, don't know, interesting. What do you think? I mean, those are all parts of my personality, of my humor, of the way in which I approach love or conflict. And I've oftentimes been very defensive and very mean-spirited in an argument, and then I have to back away and go, woo, what was I thinking? Why was I so attached to my position? I know that you've learned that lesson over and over. I think on your very first album, wasn't it, Oh America, I Now Can Say Your Name? You know, mm-hmm. that, that song, I think it was an experience of that. You had the fear, you had the disappointment, and you end up going past it to the light that's in there, too. I find that a lot going on right now in the world. See, that's the thing. If we would talk to a neighbor or a friend or someone in the workplace, for example, about the war in Iraq, If we don't do all the talking, we ask questions, I think we will find that people will eventually get to their concern, not to their rhetorical response. If one can say to someone genuinely from their heart, could you tell me what it is about this war that would take you to a place where you would offer up your child or ask me to offer up mine? That's a big big request. Will you sacrifice your child or mine 
for this. And what is the this? I'm having trouble understanding what the this is. So someone may be saying, support our troops and support Bush and support the war, but I don't think you can have the conversation at that level. I think it has to get down to the real personal. And instead of accusing someone of their position, say, will you help me understand your position? Because at this particular point in time, I just can't imagine looking you in the face as a parent and say, I want your child for this cause. If we can start to talk to each other on that level and not preach at one another and not accuse each other of things, but really try to get to the heart of the matter, really try, whether it's around people who are gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender, like what part of this, now aside from all the rules and regulations, but just what part of this actually hurts you? Which part of it is going to lead to your death or destruction? Because if it's not going to lead to your death and destruction, is it possible, given how small the planets become, is it possible that you could coexist in a loving way with the other people on the planet? So here, I just got back from last year. I went with Gloria Steinem down to Botswana. And we met with people there who are called the Sand People or the Bushmen, various names that they've been called by Northern Europeans. And the government, the Botswana government, is forcibly removing them from the desert and putting them in camps. Well, there's hundreds and thousands of acres in the Kalahari Desert, and these people have been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed off their land. And now they've been put in camps, which the Botswana government was saying, these are wonderful, these are beautiful, they'll get health care, they'll have food, they'll whatever, and they're dying. They're dying of alcoholism, they're dying of AIDS, they're dying of depression. They've become violent, these nonviolent people. They were taken away from their, from their God, which was their life with nature and with the animals and with the sand. We kept asking, why on earth is it a problem for you to give up 100,000 acres or 50,000 acres or 20,000 acres to these people to live their lives in peace. And it's very hard to get genuine answers from people. They're so caught up in all these rules and regulations. So their case has been taken to court, but it's startling to me that we have lost touch all over the world with this simple question of, is there any way we can figure out how to coexist here together? You've got a concert that's coming up in Madison, the 29th, you're going to be here. And I was wondering if the timing had anything to do with the elections that are coming up. In particular, there's two constitutional amendments that are being talked about, voted on in Wisconsin. One of them is the marriage resolution, you know, one man, one woman. And the other one is capital punishment. Are you coming here to, uh, you know, <laughs> to foment people to rise up and get out and do something to speak for something more human than what those amendments would give us? Well, I tour pretty much all of the time, so whether there's an election or not, I'd be coming. But the timing is perfect because I think what's missing right now in our country is a kind of energy and excitement about a window of opportunity. We have had some devastating things take place since Bush was elected president, both dangers to the environment, dangers to health and education, and certainly the whole economics of our country has been gutted. We're billions and billions of dollars in debt. So here we have an opportunity to change the power in Congress, for people to step forward and say, okay, you lied to us, 
not only are we going to change the power in Congress, I think we should take the next step even and say, we are the employers. We hired the wrong guy. You've broken laws, and it is our job. It is in the Constitution. This is not a party politics issue. It is in the Constitution that if you break the rules, we're supposed to fire you. We call that firing impeachment. And if we don't want to go through the impeachment process, he should be asked to resign. And not just him, but all of the people who contributed to this problem. And I know there's a general out there, a very high-ranking general, who's feeling that that should happen to Rumsfeld, that he broke a lot of rules. And we have to somehow help ourselves as a community around, and all these different communities see that doing this is not radical. This is very middle of the road. Radical is something else again, but following the rules of the Constitution is not radical. <laughs> That's like what's supposed to happen. So in terms of getting people out to vote, I'm really trying to energize people to say there are windows of opportunity that come along. Like in South Africa, terrible apartheid, horrific things that were going on there. It seemed impossible, 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 impossible. And then all of a sudden, it was possible. After incredible work and hardship and death and suffering, the sky opened up and apartheid was challenged through and through. We've been in this sort of dark ages for the last few years of feeling like, oh my gosh, this is just impossible. They have all the power, they have all the money, they have all the media. It's impossible, impossible, impossible. Well, here comes a window of opportunity to say it's possible. And we've kind of gotten in the habit of feeling like we were the minority. But the fact is, sometimes over 70% of the population agrees that the troops should come home and that Bush lied and that there has been great devastation done in our name. That's a lot of people. In almost any other country, people would call that a revolution. <laughs> and here we have people who are opposed to the war who still feel like a minority because somehow we can't seem to find each other. So we have to find deep in our spirits a way to come forward and not speak from a party politics place, but from a heart place and from the job of being responsible citizens and caring people in the world and say, this has got to change, and here we have this opportunity. After it, it'll be harder. It's always harder after the window of opportunity. That doesn't mean we won't go on, but this is an easier time right now. The, the lights are on, and, and we could all show up. That's why I call the CD Show Up. If we could all just walk outside and some beautiful yellow feather would come out of the top of our heads, we'd look around and we'd see a lot of birds because this is a dominant position right now. We just have to be brave enough and colorful enough to state it. Well, you certainly bring a lot of color to the whole experience. <laughs> I, you asked me about the gay marriage initiatives. I think that all those initiatives that have come forward have called on the most frightened people of our country, taken the most extreme minority of people who have fear-based thinking. Those people have gotten these things put on the ballot with the help, I think, of the Bush administration. I don't think the Bush administration cares about gay marriage one way or the other, but they know that in order to get those people to the ballot, those people who are in the extreme right and fundamentalist, that they won't come out just to vote for him. They're not interested in his foreign policy. What they will come out to vote for are these things that are very emotional to them. So these ballots get put on there. All these people come out, and while they're there, they vote for Bush. So I think we have to keep in mind that there's a very small percentage of people who are opposed to people loving each other. And anybody out there who is either a heterosexual or somebody who doesn't care one way or the other about their sexuality, that this is a really good time to be an ally, even if it's not your issue, even if you don't really care about it. There's going to be a time that something will come up for you and you're going to want other people's support. 
And that's the way we build community, is that we come forward when other people are in trouble. And if this is not a hugely emotional or frightening issue, I really encourage anybody who's listening, just step out there and vote against this stuff and intervene at workplaces when you hear people gay bashing or making homophobic jokes or racist jokes or sexist jokes, for that matter. I mean, it's so easy to be an ally if you just quietly and simply go, hmm, what was funny about that joke? Not laughing, because it's just so painful the way in which we abuse each other. It's a simple, kind of beautiful, graceful activism. It feels so good afterwards, you know. It's such a wonderful way to move through the world with grace. That was the thing my mother gave me so much of. She was a Victorian lady. She was so graceful. And over the years, she developed very progressive politics. But she always acted them out with incredible grace. (laughs) And it was lovely to watch because... Even when she was in her late 80s, she wouldn't leave the house without a button on her coat because she didn't want anybody to assume she was a conservative old person, you know. (laughs) She would engage people in conversation. She was very opposed to the death penalty, by the way. She um, really felt that that was a huge crime against humanity because, first of all, how many people have gone to their death only to be found out they weren't guilty? And second of all, that it is apparently not a deterrent If people are in a rage or a passion or they're mentally ill or they have been raised to be violent, they will kill whether there's a death penalty or not. So it costs so much money to take someone through all the legal steps to the death penalty, and it's such a cruel punishment. It's not a good thing for young people to grow up seeing. Young people need to see the grown-ups in their lives thinking more clearly and moving with a better sensibility than that and it makes murderers of us. Killing people to show that killing people is wrong doesn't compute. It just says, be a killer. Yeah, and I wrote a song about that, as you might know. But when will he be tried? 
singer-activist Holly Near. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, and you can find helpful links and information on that site as well. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness 